0: So he spoke, and so he spoke That Lord of me But now the rings we pour us all With no one there to hear Yes, now the rings we pour us all And not a soul to hear uh, hello everyone uh, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. Um, I'm Joe Gastineau, uh as always your host and uh, joined again, as always, by Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? Right. Odor. Uh, yeah, as you can tell by Ed's joke and the theme tune that uh, introduced this episode, uh, we're talking uh, about uh, a little show called Game of Thrones, um, which is kind of finished about a week ago um, and uh, we've only just recovered. Uh, is
1: that right, Ed? yeah I'd say so I mean it, in all honesty, I don't think I've quite fully recovered from the end of the eighth episode, so everything since then has been uh has been just kind of a blur
0: yeah and we, we should point out before we before we kind of get into the meat of this um that we're coming at it from two different perspectives I am someone who has only seen the TV show uh, and Ed is someone who has read all the books like a massive nerd.
1: Yep, that's how I like to like to think of myself.
0: Yeah, and um, uh, when you got to the end of those books, did you think, oh, God, that's, that's, that's uh, time well spent?
1: Uh, sort of. I mean, there's still two more books to go, so I kind of just thought, well, that's time well spent, but maybe I should have waited another ten years until they're all out because now I have to suffer through the same wait that every uh, fan of the books has had to suffer through but over the last uh, nearly 20 years.
0: <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for, for those of you who don't know, and if you don't know about Game of Thrones and you're not going to watch it, I, we'd recommend turning off because we're, we're probably going to spoil the shit out of the show. Yeah, and we're
1: definitely going to spoil season four.
0: It, it's a show that relies quite a lot on not knowing what happens because if you don't, then... I mean, I say this only from my perspective, um, It's it tends to be quite horrifying
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I think it's one of the most horrific shows on television that technically isn't a horror.
0: Yes, yes. Um, But yes, we'll come to that in a bit but you've been warned uh, uh, if you don't want to know what happens in uh, any of the seasons, up to season four, then uh, switch off now. Uh, Go and do something else. Um, I'll pose this question to you, Ed, and it's one that bothers me um, whilst watching Game of Thrones, a show that I love. Um on paper and I don't mean in the books I just mean uh, on paper uh, Game of Thrones should not be a good television show if if when The Wire ended uh, all the way back in 2007 or 8 or whenever it was um, and someone said to you or someone said to me uh, in, in 5 or 6 years time there's going to be another kind of the most popular TV show in America will be an HBO show and um, I'd have gone okay, yeah, sure, All right, uh, and then I said, "Well, it's 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 kind of high fantasy. Uh, there's dragons in it and stuff, um, but it's not like a bit like Poe face like Lord of the Rings is. It's like they talk like normal people and drop the C bomb every five minutes, uh, and there's like it's basically soft core uh, kind of Conan, uh, but it's not terrible. I'd just be like, yeah, but it is terrible though, isn't it? Because that sounds awful, but uh, it's not terrible. It confuses me, Ed. Can you help me?
1: Uh, I, I, I'm not sure if I can. I think you're right. There are all those elements to Game of Thrones. And I think that as the show, like when the show started, I know that that was a response a lot of people kind of had to it because there hasn't been a fantasy show like that on American television ever. Nothing with that sort of budget and that sort of scope, which also doesn't treat itself entirely seriously. Like you say, it's not really a po-faced show. It's often very, very funny and it's often very... I think it certainly, in terms of its what's known as its sex position, which is the fact that many mm-hmm. of the key discussions about what what's happening in the plot tends to happen in brothels with naked women cavorting around and the occasional naked man. Uh, I think it it's kind of quite knowing about that sort of thing, so it seems like it should be really trashy in the same way that uh, True Blood is really really trashy. But I think what kind of sets it apart from True Blood is that it's it's it is about something in a lot of ways it's about the nature of power and how it impacts all of these different people and these different characters and how it the interplay between all of these families kind of plays out and and it's also about you know the nature of history and the fact that in many ways all the key events in the series happened 15 years before the show even starts uh, and it, I think it it's a show that kind of has this really rich and involving world that I think really draws people in, but also has these kind of characters who are, you know, they're not elves. They're not these kind of uh, unearthly beings. They are recognisably human in sort of their appetites and how uh, awful they can be to each other.
0: I mean, you say they're not elves, but uh, I mean, we're probably going to move on to, to uh, talking about uh, season four. Now, season four, as it ended in the last episode, has taken that shift into what I would call high fantasy, as in, at the end of the episode, there were some elves who seemed to be throwing like fireballs at magic skeletons.
1: Yeah, I think the show has... I think I think one of the things that is that was really good, both in the books and in the TV show, is that although both begin with the introduction of the White Walkers and there's this kind of supernatural element and there's obviously all this talk of prophecy and dragons, the show and the books both tried to make you kind of forget that for a really long time. But mm. both the first book and the first season end with the introduction of the dragons. And, you know, even though there's talk of magic, there's not a huge amount of magic in that, that first part of the story. And then as it goes along, it's kind of introduced these mystical elements in a kind of a piecemeal fashion that uh, I think allows people to kind of get used to the idea You know, if if you'd introduced those kind of Harryhausen-esque skeletons in the first episode, I think people would have just rightly kind of like said, what the hell is this show? Why the fuck am I watching it?
0: Whereas Mm. now,
1: I think you're kind of like, okay, let's see where this is going. Because people have invested enough that they're willing to follow the show in these kind of interesting directions.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that it kind of does jolt you out of it sometimes when that happens, because I was speaking to a guy at work and he was just like, oh, the show's lost me now. It's gone a bit silly. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, there was like little elf pixie people throwing fireballs. And I was like, dude, like one of the characters has got three dragons uh, (laughs) that she kind of hangs around with. There's like white walkers in the episode before that, there was a giant riding a mammoth. Um, Yeah. I don't know. Mammoths were a real thing. Uh, And there are tall people around. Um, But, yeah, I'm not sure there's anything in the fossil record to suggest uh, that that happened. But um, it is odd, isn't it, given the show uh, is fantasy as, uh, uh, you know, as a genre, I suppose you could probably loosely stick it in there. Um, It is still kind of jarring sometimes when something like that does happen.
1: Yeah, I suppose to keep it in the, the HBO family of shows. I think you know. sometimes when you're watching The Sopranos, you'd be watching it and it'd just be a family drama or it'd just be about a guy having midlife crisis and then suddenly, oh yeah, there's like a shootout and you remember it's about gangsters. Mm. I think that Game of Thrones has the same sort of thing, but the problem is that, I think the problem in terms of degree of difficulty accepting the directions it wants to take you is that, you know, gangsters and family dramas can coexist in the same world, whereas uh, something like, there's a, I think there's a bigger difference between like Brienne and the Hound having a, a sword fight on a mountain and which is something that you think okay that's two real people hitting each other with real swords mm. and uh, yeah skeletons arriving from the ground and being blown up by uh, mysterious fireballs thrown by magic elf people. <laughs> yeah
0: uh, and I'm very interested as to where that kind of bit will go because uh, like I say I, I'm not kind of I, I I try very uh very hard not to second guess the show. Um and at the end of this season I was been like, oh, that that approach is going to pay off because I
1: literally have no idea what's going to happen now. Yeah, neither do I because that's basically as far as the books have gone with that storyline. So if they go ah. if they go further with that storyline, it will be entering uh, some some completely new territory for even people who have, who are up to date on the books.
0: Right, Wow. Well. Um so, okay. Season 4. Season 3. I I think it's probably fair to say that Game of Thrones begun quite quietly. I mean, Season 1 kind of came and people were like, ah, this is better than it sounded, uh, which kind of uh, confirms my point about the show being, not it shouldn't be good, but it is. Um, And that's exactly how I thought when I saw the first season. I was like, well, that's not what I thought it was going to be. And it was actually pretty enjoyable, but, you know, I could probably not watch the second season and not be too distraught. Second season built on that a little bit. Then the third season is what kicked it into gear and the world was suddenly paying attention. Uh, The Red Wedding as a thing um, gained cultural currency um, and season four had a lot of hype, a lot of expectation riding on it. Um, Did it deliver?
1: Uh, I think in some ways it did. I don't think that there were any episodes that were kind of as, as amazingly constructed as as the Red Wedding episode, The Reigns of Castamere was purely because I think there with that episode it, was, it wasn't it was just that you know it ended with this great moment, it was this great building of kind of unease and tension over the course of like 45 minutes and then suddenly everyone starts dying and it's really horrifying but even up until then you're really nervous you're uncertain what's going to happen and uh, I think that there were no, there were a few episodes this year that, that kind of had that consistency throughout their running time but there were lots of kind of great character moments and lots of really spectacular and in one case really disgusting scenes that that really kind of carried the day for me and I think that while it probably wasn't the most kind of thematically consistent episode uh, uh, season I thought it was probably the most kind of purely enjoyable
0: um it, yeah it, w- it was a lot of fun they they kind of um uh brought people into the show um and then dispatched them relatively quickly but um I'm, i will i mean let's not be around the bush talk about oba in here um uh i think i mean obviously i didn't see it coming what was gonna happen i mean i knew some something bad was gonna happen because was game of thrones <laughs> but um um, they kind of had built they, it felt this, the end of season 3 and the Red Wedding and all that kind of stuff felt a little bit like um, season 3 of The Wire where they kind of round up the Barksdale stuff like that storyline of the you know the, uh, the Starks um, is kind of gone now and then we're going to move on with the fragments of, of the characters that are left over whereas season 4 I kind of felt like it was anything goes they brought in Oberyn and you think wow what a cool character and then eight minutes, uh, eight episodes later, you know, scraping his brains up off the floor.
1: Yeah. I think, I, I think it's that one uh, is really interesting in terms of the show in general, because one of the things the show does really, really well is I think it, it's really good at wrong footing its audience. Mm. And I think Oberon came in at just the right time because he was such kind of a, a big character for pretty much the entire season. And then, and I don't think off the top of my head that the show has done that, where it's introduced a character and made them out to be a really big deal and then just kind of dispatched them in a really kind of shocking, sudden way, except for, obviously, sort of Ned Stark in the first season. But that was that was kind of a one-off. Otherwise, it kind of takes a really long time to get around to killing these characters. And uh, I, th- I think he was someone that people were so kind of enamoured with because he was this really cool... Uh, bisexual uh, Inigo Montoya character and that people really wanted to see him kind of triumph because he was so charming and he had such a righteous fury and mm. to kind of see and obviously his fate was tied into Tyrion uh, not being executed uh, so obviously people really wanted him to succeed and to see him fail at the, the very last moment was really I and mean, in you know with his head being crushed <laughs> By a gigantic Icelandic man
0: uh, mm.
1: was was really you know really shocking. I, I joked on Twitter that it's it's supplanted uh, the the scene in Deadwood where Dan rips the captain's eye out and then smashes his head in with a board. Yeah. Uh, kind of my go to moment that when I think about it just kind of makes me feel a bit queasy.
0: Yeah, I mean I'm I've got a fairly I, I'm a kind of a, a strange case in that I have a very weak stomach for real life uh, carnage. I think if uh, I would kind of cut my finger off. I'd I'd probably you know, or even if I cut my finger, not even off, I'd probably faint. Um, but I can I've got quite a strong stomach for for stuff that's you know obviously not real. But even that, I was just like, oh, oof. do you know what I mean, dude? Seriously, that's unnecessary.
1: Yeah, it was so sort of gooey and disgusting, and also because I think it, they do that that thing which is is great in kind of any sort of prosthetic horror, which is they show just enough of it to kind of plant the image in your mind but don't linger on it so you can kind of see the strings. It cuts pretty much straight away to just everyone around being completely horrified. Yeah. Which I think goes, then, it goes a long way to kind of suggesting how awful it is.
0: Yeah. Um, and It was a really canny move and it's, it's indicative of, of how the, the showrunners are structuring the seasons now, that the very next episode. I mean, you know, uh, after... Anigo uh, Montoya's head explodes. I also actually think, just on a side note, that Oberin uh, looks a lot like Rick Danko, the bass player from the band. Uh, and <laughs> okay. if you can find a correct picture, I mean, look him from the Last Waltz; they they look practically identical. Um, uh, but yeah, anyway, uh, that ends on the cliffhanger of like, yeah, this massive thing that's been building all season is um, is now over. Two people are dead on the floor, or one dead, one dying. Uh, uh, you're still going to be execute, executed. The kind of the lead actor of the show is going to be put to death, and then the very next episode we leave King's Landing, and we don't even get a minute with those characters. And we have um, the uh, the Watchers on the Wall episode, which is a uh, pretty good self-contained episode, uh, which uh, is is based all around Castle Black. And again, that's the the, the showrunner's wrong footing the audience once again, but doing so in a way that means they're not having to cram every single character into every single episode.
1: Yeah, and I think that that also you can see that in how they structured the season by having Joffrey die in the second episode because uh, to get into kind of the the structure of the books, this season was basically the last 300 pages of the third book in some ways because the third book, two-thirds of the way through you had the Red Wedding and then the last 300 pages, you think, oh, that's going to be the big event and then suddenly the next 300 pages you have Joffrey dying the attack on castle black and stannis showing up uh mm. Arya leaving for braavos uh Tywin being shot on the lav. Uh, mm-hmm. you know you have all of these things kind of happen and and obviously uh it would have been insane if they had tried to cram like all of that into the end of last season <laughs> um, so they rightly decided that there was enough stuff in there for a whole season of television but mm. because of where they chose to end it it meant that you know the second to last episode last year was the the red wedding, and I think over three seasons they'd convinced people like audiences that uh, haven't read the book that the really big like uh, world shaking event of the season is going to happen in the second to last episode because Ned died in episode nine in the first season, then you had Blackwater in the second season and red wedding, and so I think people were like, okay, so we're settling into the new season stuff's going to happen, but there's not going to be anything, like, huge. And then suddenly, oh, the like, the main villain of the show, the show, the character that everyone hates, is kind of clawing at his own throat and dying on the floor. Um, mm. I think that did, you know, I, I was uh, watching that one live, and I did just kind of tweet it at the time, and this is when Twitter loses its fucking mind. Mm. Because you could really see just, like, the reactions of people just being like, oh, my God, I can't believe the show is doing this so early in the season. And I think that is another example of them really kind of toying with their own structure and with their audience.
0: Um, do you think that, like, it's... It, the way that Game of Thrones is going now It didn't necessarily start this way. Um, it's kind of moving away from telling stories episodically and essentially just trying to weave all of these narratives through. So, it, in, in essence, a scene is basically a shortened kind of mini episode in a way
1: uh yeah i, I mean i i read an article by uh todd vanderwerth of the av club which made that argument he described it as uh, the season as a uh, a mixtape in that mm-hmm. each episode had these like little moments dotted between and each individual scene kind of had to have felt like it had to have a big moment or a thing for a character but that if you actually tried to say well what was this episode about what was the theme of this episode what did it kind of say about the characters that was often really kind of uh it it kind of wasn't very coherent not in a bad way it was still very entertaining but you kind of got the sense that after the third season which kind of did that really well uh, they they they've kind of accepted the fact that the books themselves become less kind of focused past the third book or, uh, past the Red Wedding and it becomes more about just following these different characters as they go through all these different stories and so they have to kind of play to the material which is that it has lots of these really strong moments that don't necessarily kind of connect to anything bigger so let's just make those moments as kind of impressive and, and fun and uh, it's kind of uh, memeable as possible <laughs> you know because that Tyrion's Tyrion speech at the end of the laws of God and men that became like instantly on YouTube. They were just sensation. It became a sensation. People were kind of posting that. They're posting remixes of it. The best one that I saw was one where he, when he said he wanted trial by combat, they just put in the mortal Kombat theme tune and then just <laughs> had a, a, a smash cut of all of the uh, various deaths from the series. And then kind of having different characters from the show being named as uh as characters in the video game, video game, and that's I think that's the strength of that moment and moments like it that people could kind of think, yeah, I need to kind of if I disseminate this online, I can just have a viral hit because this moment is so powerful that I can kind of remix it myself.
0: I think that that kind of feeds into what I was saying at the start with uh, the show that shouldn't be good. It's easy to overlook the fact that the writing and the acting. Um, two things that you probably wouldn't think of as being uh, um, uh, you know trump suits for fantasy uh, adaptations are actually very good in Game of Thrones Uh, that's the thing that I actually noticed first in um, in season one is that they'd made a real effort to uh, not just bring in you know hammy uh, English thesps and just say you know try and wrap your tonsils around this and make it work, which is what they do in the Lord of the Rings films uh, quite often. Um, but they actually made a point of giving the actors good dialogue and, uh, you know, giving them good bits of business uh, every week um, to work with it. And it, and it, and it pays dividends because it's, you know, it's a very, very well written and very, very well acted show.
1: Yeah, I think the the one of the moments that really stands out for me in that regard was from, uh, the watches in the wall which was an episode i i liked but i didn't think was that amazing just because i think that as big a budget as the show has for television i think it's it's always going to have the problem that you know its effects and its action will be impressive for television which is like being the tallest hobbit mm-hmm. you know it's like there are limits to what you can do just because of the time constraints and, and but it still you know it still did the best that it could within those constraints but at the end of the episode after they've been attacked and Sam and John are, are walking and John's going to go out and talk to Mance Rader they're having a conversation and then uh, Sam just kind of you know is, is saying that it's a terrible plan and John just goes you're right it is a bad plan what's your plan and it's just that it's it's just a great uh, resigned delivery from Kit Harrington and it's just such a, a a sharp bit of dialogue that just kind of makes you think oh yeah this is a terrible plan but they're in it really uh, gets across the gravity of their situation i think what uh, benioff and weiss and george R. 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 martin are really good at is they can do these like really long flowery speeches but when they need to they can like get across their point in like half a dozen words and it's it's just as impactful each time
0: mm, the rhythm and the dialogue uh reminds me of uh deadwood in, uh, in yeah. a lot of ways and, and in, in the sense that like i was saying about how um uh, i'm gonna, i don't know why i keep using lord of the rings as a, as a, the films the lord of the rings films as a touchstone but um am yeah i'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to do that anyway they they in the lord of the rings films they give shakespearean actors terrible dialogue mm. and try and get them to work it whereas in game of thrones they give brilliant shakespearean actors uh you know dialogue that kind of reads like shakespeare
1: yeah exactly and they and they do they they try and write to the quality of the actors that they have because they have assembled over over the, the the last 4 years they've assembled a hell of a selection of of different people you know starting with Sean Bean who is such a perfect choice for Ned but they don't also they don't write kind of identical dialogue for all of the characters which i think is is a problem that the lord of the rings and certainly the hobbit films have is that you know they it's very hard to differentiate between different characters because they all are written in the same voice Whereas here, you know, you know, like a certain line feels like it would be said by Tyrion or by Cersei or by uh, Jon Snow. They're, they're really good at just kind of writing in the voice of each character and making sure they all feel like distinct individuals.
0: Um, going back to season four for a second, um, the whole season, uh, as much as enjoyable as it was and, and, you know, the talking points from which there are many... Um, the whole thing seemed really off because of a scene in I think episode three where it's pretty obvious that Jamie rapes Cersei and it seems so out of place with what happens in the rest of the show and again I don't want to second guess the show because I don't really know where it's going but I still can't get my head around the fact that it happened Um, and there's been some controversy about it the director himself Said in an interview that he didn't think he was filming a rape scene.
1: Is that right? Uh, yeah, he said that he didn't think it was a rape scene, and the the actors gave a different. They, I think, the actors felt that it was a rape scene, and the writers said that it in the books it isn't a rape scene, and so it seems to be that there was a lot of crossed wires on the set, uh, and like, even if they said that they didn't intend for it to be rape, when you were watching it, it was kind of hard to interpret it as anything else. Mm. Um, i think that uh, that is a problem you know so it, rape as a, a dramatic device is something that's kind of uh, very hard to treat well and um, or, or sex in general but like a complicated sort of situation like that where they they're sort of racked with grief over their dead son slash nephew um is uh, uh, you know they they it's it's got this kind of it's got got to be handled very delicately and that scene was really very kind of blunt and didn't really seem to have any nuance to it and I think that that is at least in part a problem with the fact that the show is being shot in sort of 12 different countries simultaneously Mm. and I think it's very hard to kind of have that sort of nuanced approach if you're not in the same country as the people who are actually doing the acting. Uh, and you know it's obviously impressive what the show has done because it's it's probably the most ambitious television show in history in that regard but i think do you, think, that, do, you think, do you think that's the case i think so just in terms of the production of it because i th- i don't think there are any other shows that have that level of kind of that a that level of budget i i imagine it's getting up there for being the most expensive one ever But just mm. trying to tell this story that in the world of the show is kind of spans the globe and then in reality does you know they're not all just shooting it on green screen in Burbank mm. you know they are actually in Ireland and Malta and Morocco and Spain and you know Iceland and all these other places they go they actually do go there and take advantage of these great vistas to, to form the background to form uh, Westeros
0: mm. I mean uh, that that is true but I will say this to you Ed the Crystal Maze had an Aztec zone it had an industrial zone, a medieval zone, and a futuristic zone. So before you make such bold claims, think about that.
1: Yeah, and they did force all of the contestants to run between them.
0: Oh, well, yeah. Such great distances between uh, uh, kind of uh, Mexico and, I don't know, medieval Europe.
1: Yeah, I, uh, don't, I don't imagine they're forcing Lena Heady to run between all them. They've probably got a car or something.
0: Yeah, they've probably got drivers. Um, I mean, it is. I think. I think. I just never thought about it in that way of it being ambitious. But I think about uh, what previously would have been the most ambitious or over ambitious uh, uh, TV show, and you're probably thinking of something like Deadwood seems positively small fry next to what's going on in Game of Thrones.
1: Yeah, I guess in in terms of exploring the human condition and the nature of civilization, something like that, and and Rome, which kind of built these very elaborate, which are are kind of clear ancestors to Game of Thrones, both because they're on HBO and because they have these really elaborate production designs and many of the same cast members. Um, I think that they're, they're, they were trying for something in terms of recreating a world and, and writing about these deep themes. So they're ambitious in a different way, in a more writerly way. Whereas uh, I think the Game of Thrones is like, you know, to go back to Lord of the Rings, it's, it's ambitious in just in terms of what it's trying to do, Within the confines of what the medium can do,
0: hmm, mm, sure. Um, famously, uh, and uh, I might start to suggest that it might be infamously the the TV show Game of Thrones is based on a series of books called a A Song of Ice and Fire. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Um, and uh, I, the reason I say infamously or famously is that series of books is is not finished yet, and uh, Mister George R. R. Martin. Uh, he's taking his time, his sweet time, over doing so. Um, and I know things like the Harry Potter series weren't finished when the film started, but I know she seems a little bit tighter with deadlines, does Rowling. Um, do you think that there's gonna be a problem at some point?
1: Possibly. I mean, I think the. Worst case scenario for me is that that uh, Weiss and Benioff have to deviate in their own direction, and they just make something that's like really terrible because they don't have that kind of trampoline of of really uh, of the the story to kind of or, or that safety net of the the story that exists to help them. But at the same time, they are they are working closely with George R R, R. Martin. You know, they they go to him for story conferences and and to ask him questions about the show. So it's not like. They'd be just kind of like flying completely without his consent um, I think in the stuff they've changed for the show they've they've shown that they know what's what works on uh TV and what uh what what won't work and what needs to be discarded for example, in the books uh Brienne and the hound don't meet at all so they don't have that big fight uh the hound basically gets uh he he gets injured in that bar fight and then his his wounds turn septic and ari just leaves him at the side of the road which is uh which works in the book but obviously and and they pretty much just do that but they're in the tv show it's obviously more dramatic to have a big fight in it and and that works Mm. really well and obviously it gets to introduce these to combine these kind of collections of really popular characters in one place so they have a that because they're both novelists originally as well and screenwriters they have a sense for how to tell a good story so even if what they end up telling is not necessarily what george rr R. R. martin would have told i think it could still be good and then you end up with a situation like like maybe like akira where uh the director of akira who also wrote the the novels the graphic novels didn't want the movie to ruin his story so he basically just made up a separate ending that was still in keeping with what had gone before so i think that Worst comes to worst, you just end up with that situation. But hopefully, they could, uh, they could kind of talk to Martin and just get a general sense of how the story's going to go and build off of that.
0: It would be very interesting, wouldn't it, if, if Martin isn't actually ready to finish the stories. But I mean, obviously, our actors have to be under contract for a certain amount of time. And, you know, although some of these actors, Game of Thrones is going to be the best gig that they ever get a lot of them will have to go on and do other things so it, w- it would be actually a very interesting situation if Game of Thrones is a uh, you know faithful adaptation but only up to a point and then it goes off and, and does its own thing that would be kind of unprecedented really wouldn't it?
1: Mm, and I think it would it would present an interesting situation because finally all the fans would be in the dark you wouldn't get the smugness of people who always talk about how they've read the books and kind of Hint at things from the, the future of the story to annoy non-book readers. Mm. Everyone would be on the same page or lack of page, um, and I think that that would that would be interesting in and of itself. Um, and I, I, in all honesty, I'd rather they kind of forge ahead and finish the story in eight seasons and eight years, rather than do what George R. 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 Martin has suggested and like go back in and kind of take a break between seasons and do like mini series based on his some of the prequel novels, novellas that he's written, which by all accounts are really good, but that's not a story that I think the audience is interested in seeing when they'd rather just kind of plough ahead and find out what happens with these characters that they've spent four years getting to know.
0: Um, Are you surprised at um, Game of Thrones popularity? Um, And, you know, a supplementary question surprised by the fact that it's also critically so well received
1: i'm more surprised by its popularity than its quality because like hbo have a, have a really good track record uh, david benioff and db weiss are both really talented writers you know david benioff wrote the 25th hour which is a really good book and he also wrote the film uh, db weiss has written a critically acclaimed novels you know so they're obviously really talented people and it's got talented directors and crew and you know actors so i would have been more surprised if it had turned out to be shit uh the fact that it's caught on in such a huge way i think is testament to its quality but also the fact that it has a it's very uh it's very moorish it's very kind of like a soap opera in some ways like cause it has these kind of outsized characters and you know it has sex and death and betrayal and these really intricate plots and i think that Certainly in an age where people like to watch stuff on streaming and to buy the DVDs and binge watch them, that makes it kind of very compulsive to kind of get into and then see where the show uh, goes from there. Like, you still have people now picking up the show and the audience it is just going to kind of keep growing exponentially. And it's reached a stage now where, by certain measurements, it's the most popular show in HBO history. So, you know, it, I think it, it's a show that can really only grow because as long as the quality stays up, Uh, there's no reason for people to kind of tune out
0: Mm. Um, does the sex bother you? we talked about um, True Detective and uh, uh, the sexual content of True Detective being uh, uh, pun intended, suspect Um, and Game of Thrones uh, I I, I felt sometimes it was uh, uh, I thought are they parodying this Uh, or is this just kind of indefensible?
1: Yeah, I do find it boring. Like that rape scene really did uh, hang over the whole show for me, particularly in the last episode where uh, Jamie and Cersei just act, or in every subsequent episode where they just act around each other as if nothing weird had happened. You know, so something like that obviously hangs over me, and the the threat of rape kind of hangs over the show. But you know, I can, I I think it's, I think the idea of rape in the show is more justifiable by the fact that it's this really harsh, horrid world, and rape is the thing that happens happened in the middle ages and happens now so it would be ridiculous to write a show where it didn't happen you know it, it might be kind of difficult to watch and to stomach but it's something that you kind of have to accept because it's it's a really horrible and harsh world that they've created but i think in terms of you know like we say the what's la- jokingly referred to as sex position where it literally is like two two characters will be having a very serious talk about the nature of power and Something that's going to upset the hing- single, the the upset the kingdom, and in the background you just have kind of models kind of lesing out with each other to be crass it is it is like gratuitous, um, mm. and it does seem to be put in there for no good reason than to just be titillating. Uh, I think the show has gotten better with it as time has gone on, but certainly in the first season I think they they really overdid it with the sex
0: yeah I think that there was an episode this season uh I can't remember which one it was and there was a couple of overall um that that didn't feature any nudity at all and I remember the first one being on I think it might have been somewhere in mid season and I was just like what's weird about that episode I can't quite put my finger on it and I was like yeah there was no tits muff or bumhole it was uh, it was quite an action and I actually thought I bet you couldn't trace through the uh, the show and pick out too many examples of that didn't happen and I was thinking oh, that's kind of wrong isn't it
1: yeah I think that one watches at the Wall I don't think had any sex in it
0: no and there was one of it earlier in the season as well that didn't and it was it's, you know, it's, uh, I'm not sure that's too correct that we should be able to be in a position to actually say that
1: yeah I think it's it, it shows those sort of episodes do make you do highlight how just completely unnecessary, a lot of it is like it's very rare that a sex scene in the show has some sort of narrative purpose uh, it is mainly it is mainly just there because I think HBO's reputation as a premium cable channel that they have to have kind of nudity and stuff in it and I think that hopefully as the show goes on they'll kind of move away from that because other shows that have in HBO's kind of back catalogue have used nudity I think uh, Deadwood was very good with the way that it used nudity, which was, you know, it was often in whorehouses and stuff, but it was often treated the the whores as sort of characters and people rather than set dressing. I think that's the the main problem, is that a lot of the characters who do get naked aren't really anything other than there to kind of catch the eye. You know, they don't have inner lives.
0: Mm, yeah. Um, Where do you think... Obviously, you know where the books have gone, but where do you see season five going? Have we had any kind of details about kind of additions to the cast and who they've cast? Or uh, I seem to remember that early on between season three and four, we we had a few names confirmed for people who were going to come in already. Is that the case for season five?
1: Uh, We haven't had confirmations of casting yet, but we have confirmation of characters that are going to appear, Uh, and I think that what. Uh, part of the show is going to take place in the land of Dawn, which is where Oberyn's from. So we'll meet Mm -hmm. his brother, who is the, the, the King of Dawn and his uh, brood of uh, bastard children who are all deadly, beautiful women. So I think uh, that will be uh, interesting primarily because in the book, I think only really two or three of them are developed as characters. So it'll be interesting to see how the, the show handles that if they, Again, I only really have, like, two or three of them who have any sort of uh, real impact on the story or if they'll actually try and kind of make the rest of them characters. Um, and uh, there was a, an interesting casting choice, which is that there's going to be a casting for young Cersei, so we're going to get our first flashback. Oh, really? Yeah, which is the, the first time the show's done that. Although in the original version of the pilot, which was shot by Tom McCarthy, uh, show favourite Tom McCarthy,
0: um, mm mm-hmm.
1: There was originally going to be a flashback to the Mad King and Jamie killing him, but they, they dropped that because I think they realised they had so much work to do introducing all the current characters, so it would be really difficult to uh, kind of keep having flashbacks. So I think it'll be interesting to see if they decide to use that as an opportunity to introduce more backstory to the to the show to make it for the fact that the uh, present story is kind of very rapidly running out for
0: Right, okay. Um I, I personally, from a from a non book reader's perspective, like to see a few things ironed out. One of which is Aidan Gillen's accent <laughs> uh which has attracted a lot of attention and I think people who don't know who Aidan Gillen is, um, think he's putting on a really dreadful Irish accent. Um
1: but he's Irish. Yeah, I think he's he's spent too long pretending to be from Baltimore and he's just forgotten.
0: Yeah, I ju- I just I just don't get, uh, where it because it seemed it seemed normal in the first three seasons, did it?
1: Yeah, it seemed more or less normal. I think it was it maybe wasn't normal, but it was consistent. Mm. And as the show has gone on, I don't know if he's taking lots of jobs between his scenes where he's doing lots of different accents, but it seems like every episode, he's found a new weird dialect to kind of draw from. Well, you know, Tip, yeah. uh, uh, Peter Dinklage has a similar sort of problem, but he, his has settled down to accepting the fact that his accent doesn't sound like any accent of anyone ever.
0: Uh, <laughs> but at yeah. least
1: it is Tyrion's voice, and it will always sound like Tyrion. Whereas, uh, yeah, Aidan Gillen, I don't know what's happening with that guy.
0: Mm, yeah, I'm also hoping for more people I know being in it. Um. Uh. It's kind of a, a bit of a coincidence that the show is is cast by uh, Nina Gold, uh, kind of a renowned casting agent. But she cast a play that my wife was in, uh, at, um, Sheffield Theatres many years ago, and as a result, several actors from that play uh, have been in uh, Game of Thrones, um, uh, playing ropey prostitutes, uh, <laughs> uh, mostly. Um, but I'm looking to see if anyone would land a, a slightly bigger role. And I do know one of the stunt crew uh, from Game of Thrones, which I have to say must be one of the funnest jobs around.
1: Yeah, I imagine it must have been fun, uh, just certainly in that, that uh, the Watchers at the Wall episode, just planning out those fight scenes. Mm. The intricacy of having dozens of sword fights happening at once. It seems like it would have been a, a gruelling but fun day on the set.
0: Yeah, there's also, uh, geographically, is there an awful lot of uh, Westeros that we haven't kind of been to? Uh,
1: I think the only places that they haven't shown us yet are, are Dawn, which they'll visit, and uh, Bravos, which is where Arya has gone to, and she has a, there's some fun stuff with her coming up. Those are the only real ones that haven't been covered so far.
0: Right. Um, I, I, do you feel that, like, in season four... Um, What's her face? I have to, I'll, I'll say this now. I have, I have a lot of trouble with names of people in uh, um, in Game of Thrones. Uh, I call her Dragon Tits. Uh, I think you probably know what, who I'm talking about. I forgot my name is, is Danny. Yeah, uh, da- Daenerys. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, do you feel like uh, she got stuck in a bit of a rut in this season? Uh, that she she seemed to do the same thing quite a lot once that she'd taken the, the place of the big pyramid, is it, uh, Marine? Yes. Uh, yeah. That she seemed to be kind of just, her story seemed to be like, oh, isn't power great, but also a bit shit.
1: Yeah, uh, that's that's just a problem with the books. The books kind of leaves her there and it becomes all about the difficulties of, of ruling and it's all about the the power struggles within the, within the city itself and all the different political organisations that kind of are arrayed either on her side or against her. Which I imagine it will delve into more next season, because there is a lot of that. there's a lot of kind of the corridors of power kind of stuff in the background. but uh, I think it, it there was so much they had to get through this season that they kind of had to shortchange her, which is I think is a real shame because she's one of the one of my favorite characters, and I do like the ground that it explores with that story, but uh, it, it it's kind of just the way the, the the chips fell this season is that they could only really do part of that story that's the least interesting
0: Mm. um do you think given game of thrones popularity and and uh it's uh uh, we're talking about you know when the scope increases the the, you know it it can only really become the best the, the the biggest and most impressive looking show on tv um do you think that there's a chance that game of thrones could cross over to being a true blockbuster show in the sense that you know it's a huge revenue generator for HBO they can afford to throw kind of infinite money at it in a way
1: uh, i i think that they're always going to be limited by their subscriber base uh, mm. hbo have a lot of subscribers and because they offer a lot of they offer a lot of content they offer the really buzzed about and critically acclaimed shows and they offer lots of movies and stuff so they they have a lot of of money to throw around. You know they have uh, they they are a multi billion dollar uh, channel in an age where TV channels are really struggling and and are losing revenue uh, by the bucket load. Um, I think the only thing that limits them is whether or not the uh, the buzz about the show translates into actual subscribers, as opposed to lots of people pirating it, which I think is the in one, on one hand, is the thing that has led to its success. I think the fact that it's the most pirated show in history is why its audience has grown, because people have downloaded it and thought, "Ooh, you know that's really great," and and at a certain point, thought they need to, uh, they need to, you know, actually pay to see it in decent quality, and, you know, as it airs, or they have the buzz about it from these people who pirate it as cause people who already have hbo to check it out check it out so i think piracy has played a big part in it but unless yeah. that transfers into people actually paying hbo i think that there are limits on how much revenue it actually gives them
0: yeah i mean uh, we're talking about uh, quite staggering numbers uh, i think i say i think i read somewhere that uh, we're talking about a million downloads of like the season premiere um, in the first 12 hours, mm. uh, which volume is huge given the amount of viewers that watch it live or, or through HBO Go or whatever.
1: Yeah, and the, the, the amount of viewers that do watch it has grown hugely since the first season as well. I think the first season averaged about 2 million watched it live and this season 8.5 million watched it live. But when you factor in people watching it on demand in HBO Go, something like 18 or 19 people watched the show every week uh, which is uh, in the world of pay cable is insane and, mm. but just in general of television nowadays that's like that's unbelievably huge and uh, like I say I think it, it can only get bigger and the only limit is whether or not HBO can, can turn buzz into an increase in subscribers and then an increase in budget
0: um why do you think that HBO let that go to such an extent? I mean is is it just a case of they really can't do anything about it and the show has kind of caught on in such a sense that those numbers just reflect popularity or you I mean they they're, they are kind of pretty lax about kind of multiple users using the same login and
1: things like that aren't they? They are yeah they the the CEO in a press conference or I think it was at like a TV conference said that he's perfectly happy with people sharing their, their HBO Go password, their passwords with people because, in their view, that someone who experiences their, their product through that is a potential future subscriber. Like, if you're a, a student at university and obviously you can't afford to have HBO, you know, assumingly you'll watch it that way, and then when you have a job and can afford it, you'll think, I would really like to be able to watch this on my TV, on my, like, high-def TV or whatever. Uh, so i think it's a very forward-thinking way of viewing it but the the problem the, the reason why they're able to do that is because they are a subscriber channel and they're not having to worry about piracy leading to losing money from advertisers because i think piracy tends to hit network shows more because obviously if you're not watching it live the advertisers are gonna like not want to pay for your airtime whereas if your already, your shows are already paid for by a subscriber base. Then it does, I don't think they really care that much if you pirate it. If it just generates buzz about their shows,
0: um, HBO did uh, change the, you know, they kind of shortened the gap um, in terms of availability between uh, US air date and UK air date, and I presume other territories air dates um, to reflect that um, worry about piracy, and I think. Uh, the premiere, season premiere was simulcast in, in America and the UK that's obviously them responding to it do you think that Game of Thrones oh, and also Breaking Bad did it as well in the sense that you know it aired in America and then it was available on Netflix in the UK within 12 hours or uh, 10 hours do you think that those moves are things that maybe in 10 years time we'll look back and think well this is why we have everything available on one date
1: yeah absolutely I think those are the the signs of people who are of of network executives who are fairly forward thinking and are looking at the the landscape and saying, What can we do to kind of stay relevant and to fight this this thing that is has been stealing viewers and has stolen revenue from it and I think there's probably more things they could do about it such as you know the the idea that's been floated that HBO make HBO go its own subscription thing, so you don't have to pay the higher subscription. You can just pay for it like a Netflix account at like ten or twenty dollars a month or whatever. Um, I think things like that seem more kind of for even more forward thinking and more proactive in trying to tackle that sort of thing. But they're probably several years away from it, and they're obviously doing well enough now that they don't really have to think about it, but. I think the fact that they are kind of seizing on that opportunity says a lot about how their success has allowed them to take a step back and think, what can we do to improve this situation for ourselves? Which I think a lot of network television haven't hasn't been able to do just because they're so wrapped up in the collapse of advertising revenue and of viewership that they they can't really think about the future. They're so panicked about the present.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, it almost feels like we've we've talked about this uh, too seriously. We've, we've used <laughs> Game of Thrones as an opportunity to jump off and talk about all things like, you know, production budgets and, and you know, piracy and all sorts of... You know, I feel like this doesn't feel like I said.
1: Well, we did manage to include the phrases lezzing up in Tits Muffin Bumhole, so... <laughs> it, uh, there's bits of our personality kind of, like, sprinkled throughout, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, let's not be too hard on ourselves. Um... So yeah, uh, ten months is it to wait till the next season of, of Game of Thrones?
1: Yeah, it'll be about the same start time last year, sort of March April.
0: Right. Okay. So they'll be shooting it kind of t- like kind of towards the end of summer this year. Well, that's not far away, is it? Will they move into production that quick?
1: Yeah, I think it's something like that. They they just kind of ramp up and they have a few months off to allow the cast to go and shoot their own projects. But uh, I think they're they're fairly constantly in production, because it's a it's a big beast that they have to keep moving.
0: Is there anything else you want to add about Game of Thrones? Is there anything else we can talk about? Uh,
1: no, I think uh, we just need to l- remind everyone to uh, rate and review us on iTunes if you've enjoyed the show. Uh, if you leave a review, it can help get us more listeners, and uh, it might make you a better person, although that is not a guarantee. And uh, mm. our end theme tonight will be an 80s remake uh, remix of the Game of Thrones theme by a guy called Steve Does D U Z Z, and you can find him on uh, on SoundCloud.
0: Yeah, Steve Does. That's that works on two levels. <laughs> that name. I see what he's done there. Um, yeah, like Ed says, review the show, rate it, uh, because we appreciate the praise, or and we ignore the criticism. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's our Game of Thrones roundup. We'll be back again. Uh, very shortly with something uh, no doubt is well no doubt will be kind of less thoroughly discussed than this has been uh, and uh, you know much less considered than this one um, so until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me yeah goodbye from me